We've been uh, looking through the book of Galatians, looking in the book, and it always surprises me how little people spend in God's Word, but they may be coming from a teacher, not a pastor. Well, I guess I am sort of a pastor, if you think of it that way. But I, I really believe that this book of Galatians contains in it an underlying exhortation to stay in the truth of grace and not to mix in old covenants with new covenants. And it's a message that we are familiar with, but we need to be reminded. As Paul says, it's no problem for me to keep reminding you. Because I still have conversations with people around where we go into doctrinal discussion, and I'm surprised that we aren't all going over the mountain at the same speed. I just have to be honest about that. I'm like flabbergasted at times when I hear comments people make or, or things they, they say they believe around the gospel that is clearly a mixture of, of law and grace. And I thought we'd kind of gone over that mountain. But here we are still preaching the same message out of this book of Galatians. And also just to remind you that on Monday, whoever preaches on the Sunday will do a five-minute quick synopsis of the teaching, also with one or two leading questions for discussion time. That could be in the home, could be at the office, could be in your life group. And currently, we only send that out to the life group leaders, but we're wanting to change that and just send it out to everybody. So that you can get, even if you're not here on the Sunday, a five-minute synopsis of that passage in the book that we're systematically working through. Amen. Looks like you're going to make me work hard here today. Well, why don't we just stand up one last time? Let's stand up one last time and let's declare, Father God, your word brings life to dead bones. When you speak, ligaments attached to sinews, sinews to bone, hips to skeletons, skeletons rise up and they are covered in flesh and in the valley of decision, dry bones are gathering because your word is going out to all the earth. I receive today your word. Amen. Amen. Right. So I want to share a little bit this morning coming out of Galatians chapter 2. On the topic, keeping in line with the truth of the gospel. Keeping in line with the truth of the gospel. Let me just introduce one of the characters into the story here. Peter. Peter's a wild fisherman, gets gloriously saved, walks with Jesus, goes through the whole death, burial, and resurrection, feels like a failure, is reinstated, is there on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Ghost, and he stands up and preaches his first sermon, and 5,000 people are converted. A few days later, he's on top of a building, and God speaks to him by sending down a sheet with all kinds of animals, with crayfish and prawns and calamari, all the stuff you like to eat. And he says, you can now eat anything. There's a shift between an old priesthood and a new priesthood. There's no longer a law to bring righteousness. It's now faith in Jesus to all, Jews and Gentiles 
alike. So this is the great man I want to introduce. The second one is Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. He was uh, circumcised on the eighth day. He was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was second only to Gamaliel in, in study and understanding and learning. And he was fast advancing beyond his age when he had a radical encounter on the road with Jesus Christ in his resurrected state. And he goes off for three years and he sits under the spout where the glory came out. And then he goes up to Jerusalem and he presents himself to the apostles of which Peter was one of them. Just to make sure he hadn't gone too far off track, presents his gospel. And they say, absolutely, this is the new covenant. This is the superior covenant. Yes, Peter, keep doing what you're doing. Yes, Paul, keep doing what you do. Paul is a, a, a Gentile apostle, and, Paul, and Peter continues in Jerusalem, predominantly ministering to the Jews. <sighs> Was that a quick synopsis? Now, with light of that, let's read this. Galatians 2, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group confrontation. Not a nice thing to do. I mean, come on, who wakes up every day and says, today I'm going to enjoy some confrontation? No, we don't like being confronted confronted because we feel it's rude and it's, uh, it's impinging on our personal space and who do you think you are anyway? It's kind of very countercultural. We We don't go around wanting to be corrected and rebuked and, and uh, Put in, put in line. And I think we should choose our battles. I don't think we should be doing that all the time. But, you know, don't, don't sweat the small stuff. But when it comes to the big stuff, like the integrity of the gospel, then we should be ready to confront, rebuke, correct, and all the rest. When it comes to the big things in our children's life, we have to confront, correct, and rebuke. Try not to do it on all the small little stuff all the time, or else it's just no, 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 no. And then when you say no, it's not so, doesn't sound so definitive. And in church, we shouldn't be pouncing on every little thing that maybe, you know, got a little bit skew. We should focus on the main stuff and keep the main thing the main thing. And the gospel is the main thing. So Paul has to take a risk here and confront who would be seen as one of the mighty apostles in Jerusalem. Imagine taking that job on. Plus he was an ex-fisherman, so he's, not, he's tough, and he's rough, and by the sounds of his language before he got saved, he had a proper BC career in ungodliness and promiscuity and wildness. And Paul, this astute little skinny bandy-legged bald-headed little uh, scholar from Jerusalem has to now rebuke this apostle. But he does so because he has to keep the integrity of 
keeping in line the truth of the gospel. None of us like being corrected, but there's a time that we should welcome correction. Even as leading into this point number one is challenging and corrective rebuke is often needed in order to keep in line with the truth of the gospel. To keep in line with the truth of the gospel. In fact, it even says in Proverbs 27, that better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy will just multiply kisses. Sometimes it's better to get a bit of a, a correction from somebody who really loves you, providing it's done in love and done in gentleness, and we can receive it. Then when people just go around tapping you on the back saying, oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, you know, let's not mix up law and grace, but it's okay. We understand if you do sometimes. Or, you know, we know you're going back to your old way of living. You're going back to your comfort zone. You're going back to your old identity. But, you know, we just love you anyway because Jesus just loves everybody. Y'all will tell those who went into the temple with a whoop and kicked over tables. Hello? Clearly in the wrong. Afraid of the circumcision group. And other Jews joined with him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. You see, our holding on to the past can even lead other people into error. I don't know who saw the movie Gladiator. I think most of us, it was a good choice movie. And if I'm not correct, in the beginning of the film, he's the, the gladiator who became the gladiator was a, a, a captain of a legion of horse warriors. And they're in the forest and they're about to come down, but they want to comb through the forest and make sure there's no gaps in their rank so that they can cut across the fields and then take the enemy by surprise. And all he, the, the film starts off with him shouting, hold the line. Do you remember that part? Hold the line. He knows if they get out of line, the enemy's going to have an advantage. Hold the line. Don't step out of line. Keep in line, guys. You're at the back there. You, you, you're lagging off. You're in front. You're moving too fast ahead. Get back. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the... And he brings this whole, um, what do you call a battalion of horses? A, uh, a cavalry. A cavalry around combing through, through the forest and out into the open in one straight line. And that's kind of the emotion and the, the picture I get when I hear Peter saying he was out of line with the truth of the gospel. Peter, you should know better. You had a rooftop experience like no other person has had. Three times the Lord said to you, get up and eat. Same as he reinstated you three times when he said, feed my sheep. Sometimes some people need to be spoken to three times before they get it. Peter, you were on that roof and the Lord spoke to you. You should know better than anybody else. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You see, here's the thing. What, did, what was Peter's big sin? He just moved his plate slightly from one side of the table to the other. 
Because before the Jews, these Jewish brothers came down from Jerusalem with an agenda to proselytize, which means they were going to convert Christians to first become Jews in order to be fully-fledged Christians, which was an abomination in Paul's theology, because it would be stepping back under the law and mixing law and grace. He says, he says, you were here with us eating at the table and enjoying the freedoms of grace and eating the odd crayfish and calamari, and now your brothers come down, and you know how sometimes people behave differently when someone else is in the room? You know, up until that point, they're fun, and they, then suddenly they, they, the whole temperament changes. <gasps> he called me Duomini. Oh, here comes this one. Oh, that one. I remember having an experience once. You know, we had to do compulsory military uh, training, and we got totally brainwashed and beaten up psychologically, brainwashed into, you know, our respect for different ranking. You know, a, a troopy was afraid of a corporal, was afraid of a lieutenant, was afraid of a captain, was afraid of et cetera, et cetera. And there was this, like, fear control system. And I remember, like, years after being finished with my military uh, compulsory training, st- going into a shopping center and bumping into who's to be our platoon lieutenant. And as I walked up and I recognized him and he partially recognized me, I felt my body tense up. I felt my arms come to my side. I felt like my heels clicked together. I I got this like knee-jerk response to someone who, who just walked in the room. And then I realized, I'm not in the army anymore. I don't report to him. He doesn't have to expect anything from me. He can't command me. He can't order me around. Come on, Peter. Don't you realize that your days being in Judaism are over and you're trying to stand right before God according to the law? Those days are finished. And now because you are in Christ and put your faith in him, you don't have to fear these guys coming down from Jerusalem. You are acting like all of us. Now what's happened to you? Why have you changed? that they were not acting they were not holding the line they were not holding the line of the gospel the truth of the gospel and I said to him you're a Jew but you're living like gentle Gentiles yeah but when the Jew, but now you're forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs what has happened to you my second point is in the same way that Paul rebukes in order to realign Peter to keep him in line with the truth of the gospel, we have to correct and challenge and even rebuke where necessary. When teachers around the world first started preaching a strong emphasis on grace 10, 12 years ago, there was a huge reaction to it. I don't see that same reaction run anymore because I think that first wave came through and was like a tsunami, just took everything in its way, made a little bit of mess in its path. But since then, it's kind of the waves have got up to standard. And it's only here and there that we need to realign and to hold the line and make sure that our doctrine doesn't go off into a mixture. But for the most part, there's definitely a sense of We are living in new covenant realities. What was Peter's problem? Well, simply this. His identity was in his past 
religion. And he, when other people came into his presence, it reminded him of that, and his whole body tensed up. And he started acting differently. You see, when, here's the thing about identity. If, and we all need a restoration of identity in life. We need to know who we are. We're not of the old, we're in the new. Whoever's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We need to understand our identity as he is, so am I in this world. But if our identity gets hijacked by our past performance or our past significance, it's a very dangerous thing. For example, if our significance came out of the cars we drove, then our identity will feel under threat when I'm forced to drive something that's half rusted and I have to use my feet through the rust boards at the bottom to stop the car. If my significance is based on what I ha- owned, when our significance is not based on what I wear, what I drive, where I live, where I went to school, but based in who I am in Christ, as he is, I'm a new creation in Christ, then it matters squat what car we drive, what school we went to, what, etc., etc., etc. But if our significance came from our job, and our elevated position, and because we had an escalator that took us up to our air-conditioned office and 15 secretaries that ran in to make us cappuccinos, and one day, because of circumstances, that's taken away. If our identity is not as a Christian in what Christ has achieved, but still in the performance of our old life, we very easily get rattled. Let's be honest. King David was no different. God birthed him for the purpose of ruling Israel as a king. Samuel had to call it out in an environment where David was overlooked by his own father. Imagine if his significance didn't come from the one he worshipped as a shepherd boy. Out there, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And and your dad left you out. Maybe we all got a story about that. If our significance comes from our position, our title, and all that, we'll never rise to the occasion when Goliath wants us to show up and the king to step forward. And the, David didn't go to Goliath to, to, to prove himself or, or he never went to taking, you know, Nando's and KFC up to his brothers on the mountain with Saul uh, when he heard Goliath uh, mocking and chanting. He didn't go up there with an attitude, let me go show them who I am. Something just called the king out of him. Irrespective of people's criticism, his identity, his significance wasn't in his title, his upbringing, who his brother thought he was, even though he lived under the shadow of the oldest brother who his dad thought would be the next king and all the rest. David knew he was anointed. David showed up. He didn't come to brag. He just came to show up. Identity is so important. David could have never ruled Israel the way he did. You have a new identity. Peter, what's going on with you? Why are you shrinking back into your old identity? More about that in a moment. Religious legalistic performance and also complacent, half-hearted, lacks apathy. You see, when our identity is not in the new covenant and who we are in Christ, 
there are two roads we can walk down. One is the road of legalism, where we become religious and believe that that is what impresses God. Or else we can go to the other extreme where we become complacent and drift back into selfishness, which is become self-indulgent uh, and self-satisfied and selfish. You, you know, both extremes are rooted in selfishness. The, the Corinthian drift into immorality was through selfishness. I want to do what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm the king of my life. But the Galatians had a different problem. They were trying to mix law and grace on the example of Peter. And now their selfishness was showing itself in self-righteousness. Oh, look who I am. Don't you know where I come from? Don't you know my pedigree? Don't you know Kerk at Bohurtan? Which is translated, don't you know what's my church? And... At the conference we were at in Uganda, one of the pastors of a local group of churches came, was sitting with Greg and I, having a coffee. And he said, you know, I love this message of grace that you guys are preaching about. Man, it just, it's really got into my heart, you know. Greg, you've been coming back for a few years now and, and listening to you guys preaching on this. But I could never go preach this in my church. So he said, Why? He says, no, no, that, that, I, I'd, I'd lose my job. When our identity is found in anything else but who we are in Christ, only then can we risk holding the line and keeping to the truth of the gospel irrespective of the consequences, irrespective of the, the judgments, irrespective of even making a few mistakes. But the other extreme is also equally dangerous, which is apathy and half-heartedness and going back into our comfort zone. You hear it every now and then. This is the ditch on the other side. Let's, let's finish what Paul is saying. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may not be justified by, uh, sorry, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. When you preach the truth to keep the line with the truth of the gospel, the same old question arises. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove I am a lawbreaker. How many times does Paul get accused of this? Because when you preach the good news to its nth degree and you remove all the scaffolding of law and you remove all the safety net of, of legalism. Paul, I can't preach this in my church. They will, I won't have a job. They will 
throw things at me. They want to be kept feeling bad as sinners for the rest of their life so they can come to church and be prayed for. If I tell them the truth that they no longer have to live in fear of God because he's already been satisfied with what Jesus did at the cross, I'm not going to have a congregation to speak to anymore because they're going to find that they're free. And they don't need me to be their intercessory in between priest to stand between them and God and pray and beseech the Lord for them and drive out all those evil demons every Sunday when they come to church and hold them in captivity. I can't preach. The, if I preach this message you're telling me about, I'm going to get into big trouble. People are going to start sinning. I've got news for you. They're already sinning. They've just hid it very well. And now they come and confess it. You think they've started sinning. No, no, they're always doing it. Now they feel safe because the environment's safe. But sin is destructive. And Paul says, God forbid. You don't rebuild what you've broken down. And that's got another slant to it, but I haven't got time here this morning. But basically, he's saying, this message sounds like that because we're removing the law. But in the process, there's something much more wonderful that you're being born again into. Because what you get born into is more important than what you came out of. You came out of self-righteousness. You came out of trying to do it yourself. You came out of a religion where God was off there in a distance somewhere and you were trying to reach him and try to touch him and try to please him. And now you find out that he's all those and more. That doesn't make you want to go and sin more. Surely you're not going to rebuild what you've broken down. Can you sin? Yes, you can. Can a butterfly land on cow poo? Yes, it can. Does it mean the butterfly is a worm? No, it's not. Unless it keeps seeing itself as a worm. When our identity is established in our unworminess, we will never step across and spread our wings into worthiness. And as long as we keep seeing ourselves as just that poor sinner saved by grace, such a wretch as me, as long as we keep believing that God is out there somewhere and we have to just keep straining and stretching to get hold of him, as long as we believe that, you know, we've just got to confirm to these 15 church uh, requirements and then we'll get all the ticks in the right places and they'll negate all the crosses in the wrong places, we've made it. We'll keep seeing ourselves as a worm. You see, if, if you're a mechanic and you get a new job and you get uh, promoted and you now got an office job and you got to wear a suit every day, you might forget one day you're wearing a suit and want to climb under a car. But who knows that's not a good idea with a dripping oil engine. But if you keep thinking in your mind, now I'm just wearing an overall, that's just the old, you know, sinful me, you know, I tried and I failed and I'm just a bad person. And if you keep seeing yourself like that, then go climb under the car. Let the Lord do its work. <laughs> It'll lead you to Christ. But when you start hearing the truth that I have received the garments of righteousness, I have received the helmet of salvation, I have the breastplate of truth, of, 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 of righteousness. I have the, 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 the sword of the Spirit. I, 
I'm in him. The same spirit that raised Jesus is living in me. He is my older brother. Here on earth, I'm like he was when he was on earth. No, I'm not the Jesus, the creator. I will stand before him in worship. But on this earth, he has said, I'm doing nothing unless I do it through you. Now take up your mantle, take up your rightful position, and start believing who you are. Oh, well, will they sin more? Well, they were sinning before. Maybe now they just want to get victory. But they're not going to get victory while they still see themselves wearing dirty, greasy overalls. Hello? For through the law, I die to the law, that I may live for God. Man, that just says it all. I died and I live. I died to my first marriage to Mr. Law, and now I'm living to my second marriage called Mr. Grace, Romans 7 teaches us. Under law, I was always reminded of my shortfallings and my mistakes, and I brought all the baggage from my past in. But in this new marriage, Jesus Christ is my victory. He's more than a conqueror. He's an overcomer, and I'm seated in heavenly places in him. And I choose not to associate with my past, but with my future, because what I've been saved into is more glorious than what I've been saved out of. I died, I live. I died, I live. I died, I live. Before the superiority of the new covenant, those new creation realities is the truth of the gospel. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that wonderful? That beautiful scripture that we so often quote is like the diamond in that whole setting we've just been looking at. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. You don't know why it's unnatural for us to just go out and act like a worm? Do you know why it's unnatural for us to crawl under a greasy car? You know why it's unnatural for us just to say, well, I can do what I like? It's because You're a new person. You're a new creation. Someone is living inside of you, and he is able to do abundantly above all you can imagine or think. As long as you are self-limiting in your identity, in what you did or who you were, or in your current performance of how good I am, you will always trip up, and you'll be falling under the law, falling under the self-imposed rules and regulations. But only when we come to a place where I know it's no longer I, because I was crucified, and I was raised again. And when I was raised again, Jesus took up residence inside of my spirit. I have the same spirit living in me now, and he has the ability to live here on earth as he lived on earth because he is in me and you and you. Any Liverpool supporters here? Have I said the wrong thing? Man United? Sorry for you. Chelsea? Sorry for you. And are they going to second division? Mo Salah now has been rated as the top football player in the world. And I'm so glad because I just love Liverpool and I love Mo Salah. 
And if Mo Salah was able to enter a soccer tournament at your school, kid's school and get in the skin of your kid and play as Mo Salah, how do you think the odds would turn out? You see, that would be an unfair advantage. Imagine Mo Salah climbing in and being taking over your kid's body and running onto a soccer mat field. You'd be a one-man team. We've got to grasp this. Christ in me. Playing the game he always wanted to play. Living the life he lived when he was here. Walking how he walked. And not to slip back into apathy. And well, won't they stop coming to prayer meetings? Well, won't they stop reading their Bible? Well, won't they stop witnessing? Well, you know, you take all those chances when you tell people the truth, when you unlock the cage. And I get it that we don't read the Bible because we're setting up a list of rules to try and, you know, improve on our performance. We read the Bible as a mirror to see what God has done for us in the master plan of salvation so that we know who we have, that we know what we, we can say, what we can do. The Bible takes on a new form. But in this process of discovering this, some people just stop reading their Bible. And they do it in the name of, I'm now not under law anymore. Hello? How dumb can you get and still breathe? I don't evangelize anymore. Because, you know, some brothers came from Jerusalem and told us everyone is saved. What a lot of garbage. Unless you put your faith in Jesus, you cannot receive the forgiveness of sins that was paid for you 2,000 years ago. Well, what if they stopped coming to the prayer meeting? Well, you know, there was a time when I also stopped going to prayer meetings because everybody was, had God out there and everybody wanted to share their quiet time. And everybody, I wanted to ask, do you only pray like this when you're in a meeting or do you pray like this on your own? Because we're not yet to perform. And I just like backed off prayer meetings. Didn't mean I stopped praying. Prayer is our most powerful weapon to open on earth what's been opened in heaven and to, lo- and to resist on earth what's been resisted in heaven. Jesus gave us authority through prayer to bind and to loose. And when we pray every day, like breathing in and breathing out, we are ambassadors of a, of a higher government on earth as it is in heaven. We are change agents. We are moving things because we are agreeing with heaven. If church, if Christians don't pray, they're not agreeing with heaven. If they don't agree with heaven, nothing's going to change on earth. Prayer is the asimal for Nechias. It's just what we do all the time. We're breathing in, breathing out. I don't pray to get closer to God because I discovered I'm already as close as I'm ever going to get. I'm not going to pray so that God likes me more. I've already discovered he likes Likes me as much as he's going to ever like me. But what I've discovered is that when I pray, I can loose on earth what's been loosed in heaven. And I can bind on earth what's been bound in heaven. I have an advantage. Well, you know, what if people just stop going to church? Well, maybe they were going to church for the wrong reasons. You know, maybe they had that old picture of the pastor doing an attendance record on Sunday. And... You know, three ticks a month will just get you through. If you drop below three. I mean, you can have a day off, but below three. Man, we want to go to church because it's where the people gather to worship. 
We want to come into a place where we can step temporarily out of the, the scene and, and the created into a place of, man, we are now lightning rods for heaven to ignite earth with its presence and its power. I can be transformed during a time of worship. I go from praise into worship, into glory, as I shared earlier. There's a place in worship where I'm not just singing songs like I'm sitting at a club and, you know, doing karaoke. This is the real deal. This is not the karaoke. This is the real stuff. This is entering into heaven together with a community. Why wouldn't I want to do that? And anyway, if that's the one thing Jesus says he's building on earth is the ecclesia, I want to be part of the ecclesia. No matter where its representation is, if it's in someone's home, if it's in a building, if it's in a denomination, if wherever, I want to be part of the church, in the church, in the area, in the community, because Jesus is building his church. Why would I not want to be part of that? But there's this apathy that has slipped in. Our challenge isn't so much the legalism, although it's there, but there's this apathy. Why? People, would they still give financially when they found out they're in a superior covenant and that they don't have to fear God's anger and wrath because they don't give anymore and know he's not going to shut the storerooms of heaven. Once they find out the truth, they're going to stop giving. Yeah, they probably will. Because for years they were told if you don't give God's out to punish you, and now they're angry, but get over your anger. The finance, the kingdom needs finances. The church needs finances. Money is not coming from heaven. It's coming through your pockets. As generous givers. As people who say, a tenth of my time at least is worth de- devoting to the work of the kingdom through the local church. The church is spreading the message of the, of the gospel. And I'm part of that church. And it needs finances. And Lord, here am I. Increase my income by 10% so at least I can give 10. But maybe more if you show me that I should give more. You can't preach this message because people are going to stop giving. Well, maybe they did for a while. But we should come full circle and go, wow, this is something worth investing in. This is something worth investing in. You see, a legalistic approach to all what I've been talking about now will only create outward observers with God at a distance, with him ticking and crossing. But the understanding of the new covenant is one big tick over the cross and his name is Jesus. And God is forever satisfied. You are forever qualified. And you stand justified in the righteousness of God, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I've run out of time. Finally, Paul repeats and summarizes for emphasis to keep in line with the truth of the gospel. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's stand up. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this apostolic writing that has reached us and has realigned us both against legalism and against apathy for the cause of the gospel, to hold the line, to advance on the enemies of God and to walk in victory. And all God's people said, amen, amen. God bless you.